Hey, listeners, this is Marcia Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas. This is Talk With Me. I'm so excited, as you can hear in my voice, I'm so excited to be recording. I have not recorded often enough. I love getting to know the different artists that I do shows with, whether they're artists I've talked with before or brand new to me. I'm really excited today. And I want to say today is May 11th. And yesterday was the birthday of my guest. So I want to say happy birthday to Emma Smith-Stevens and welcome to Talk With Me. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I am, I'm shocked and so tickled that you know that. <laughs> um, well, <thank> Facebook. <laughs> That's right, Facebook. <laughs> there you go. Technology is our friend sometimes. Technology is, is our friend right now because Zoom is my tech partner. <laughs> there you go. Hey, I want, I want to say this out loud. It's, it's so interesting to me. I, of all the shows that I've recorded since, in the, since summer of 2020, not a huge number of shows, they've all been with cisgender men. And it's so nice to talk to somebody else. Yay, woman, Emma. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a really nice thing. And I was thinking about, I was remembering again, the way that I originally heard of you has to do with cisgender men because it was, you wrote a book that I have, and I'll put a picture in the social media post but you wrote a book, The Australian, a novel. And I learned about that book because one of my friends, a poet and local independent bookstore owner, Danny Kane, has poems that are now published in books, but were originally published in Hobart. And it was one of the Hobart journals that had one of Danny Kane's poems about franchise restaurants. <laughs> yes, he's got two books about this, <laughs> um, of poetry. I'm looking through the issue going, okay, who do they have who is not a man? And the first person I found in that particular issue was you and an essay about an Australian reading the Australian. <laughs> it was a great fun essay. And I ended up buying the book and loving the book. And then it's taken us a few years, but now we're finally recording. But I guess in some ways I have to thank Danny Kane for our connection. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the kind words about my book. And I want to thank Danny Kane too. <laughs> Danny's known these days as the anti-Amazon person. He's all over um, his, his social media about how Amazon is detrimental to small mm -hmm. presses and independent bookstores um, really became something that lots of people picked up on. And he actually recently published a book about that whole That's Amazon fabulous. bookstore um, dilemma. I'll just leave it at that. Um, so I'm excited to, to get to know you. I'm excited you know, for readers to get to know about this book. And, and I have to say, I have a favorite Australian, and I want to give a shout out to him as well. Brenton Booth, who is a poet whose compassion for humans in all kinds of situations is outstanding. Brenton is all heart. 
and he I, I love that that you know it has nothing to do with your book other than the title but he's mm -hmm. my favorite Australian <laughs> <laughs> so gosh I, there's so much that we want to talk about you know I love I love hearing from people about the personal side of their writing like what is it about writing how long you've been writing what you know like just wherever you want to go with that but it's like yeah I want people to end up buying books from the people who I talk <laughs> with I want them to buy them because they feel a really strong connection to that writer and that book and that they get it that buying books is a really good thing you know it's buying books and buying books is locally to the person as you can if you can mm -hmm. buy from the small press if you can buy it through independent bookseller if you can't buy it through an independent bookseller of your own and don't want to go to somebody else's community bookseller then how about buy it from one of those sources that really gives a lot of the portion back to the authors and presses um, as opposed to the really really big online sellers anyway mm -hmm. How about you? What's going on, Emma? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really an honor and a pleasure. Um, and um, it's funny, you know, you mentioned that um, that sort of essay slash interview in Hobart. Um, I want to say that, you know, because probably most people haven't read that, it's... Um, what happened was I uh, I wrote this book about um, an Australian guy who's only ever called the Australian. And um, it's really, it's sort of in a way a weird coming of age story, even though he's like in his thirties at the end. Um, he's, he never knew his father and his mother was very like suffocating with affection um, and he, kind of fled to the other side of the world to New York to try to become rich on Wall Street and then goes through all these kind of failed uh, ventures like there's something he starts something called day club which is just a nightclub open during the day um, which really takes off at first but then you know fizzles out and gets married and has a son of his own and so I wrote this book and out of the blue, I got a Facebook message from a, a stranger saying, did I get like really drunk and tell you my life story? <laughs> wow. And I said, no, <laughs> um, and actually the book is, is based on a real person a little bit. Um, it was somebody that I knew for one day when I was 19, a guy that I met in a coffee shop who uh -huh who told me that he put himself through college uh, dress by dressing up as Superman and posing with tourists for photos. Uh, so like that one detail, I don't know what, why or how, but I just like took that and made this whole person. Uh -huh. um, but I said, no. And he said, because reading this, I, I was walking, it started to rain and I saw it was an advanced review copy. So it was before the book even came out. It was like, you know, some reviewer, I guess, didn't maybe didn't like it. I don't know, but it was in a gutter. Oh, and no. he said, I had to save him. He's one of my own because it's called The Australian. Uh -huh. And he said, when I read it, it changed, it totally changed my life, da, 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 all this stuff. And he describes that in the interview, but it was so wild and so 
like I felt like I wrote this book for him uh-huh. you know for like this guy <laughs> um so yeah it's a fun it's a fun interview and yeah. um, kind of describes a little bit where the character really came from as well um but I can also introduce myself a bit um okay. I'm I'm from New York City um and I live here now um, in Brooklyn. I've lived a bunch of places. Um, I've lived in the Hudson Valley, um, which is like, you know, an hour and a half north or two hours north of New York City, um, really beautiful region. I lived in Gainesville, Florida, where I got my MFA in fiction writing at the University of Florida. Um, uh, when I first went to college, I bombed out after a year, um, like total crash and burn situation and ended up in South Florida. So I lived in Delray Beach, Florida for three years. And after I graduated college, I lived in LA for a year. Uh, yeah. So I've been I've been here and there. <laughs> yeah. But I'm so, uh, it's really nice to be back, um, especially with the pandemic. Um, I, my brother and his partner and their baby are our neighbors, like literally right down the hall. Um, so for a while we had to bubble with them and, you know, um, yep. Nice. So you've kind of been ocean dweller is what I'm thinking. New York, where you are, is not far from the ocean. Florida, Los Angeles. True. Do you well, have a longing for water? <laughs> well, when I, Gainesville is in cent, north central Florida, so uh-huh. it's, it feels more like the south, like Savannah or something, okay. than, say, Miami or, like, uh-huh. vacation land Florida. Uh-huh. Um, but I guess so. But I love... Um, I love mountainous landscapes as well. And you know what? I've heard really beautiful and amazing things about Lawrence. Um, actually, <laughs> last night I was at dinner with somebody who lived in Lawrence for like at least 10 years. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. My friend Becca Evanhoe, who's a wonderful writer. Um, nice. She, uh, she loves Lawrence and always has talked about it. So it's like this mythical place to me that I <laughs> love to visit. <laughs> it is a, a cool, there's a lot of cool stuff about Lawrence, Kansas which I think is a lot of it, not to diss Lawrence, but a lot of it I think is a, a thing about cities that have major universities in them, at least mm-hmm. liberal universities, that liberal by sort of tradition, story, whatever. You know, it's because it's, I've, I've had people say, well, it's a lot like a small Austin or it's like this or mm-hmm. like that. It's like, yeah, it's, it's an interesting place. There are some good pluses. There are some weird minuses. We have Haskell Indian Nations University, which is one of the few Indian um, universities or colleges in the whole country, which means there are people who come from all over to go to that university, which sadly is rooted in the terrible boarding school um, Mm -hmm. tradition of taking the white out of the native people, which literally was the mission early on. Um, And yet I think about how long I lived in Lawrence coming here to go to undergrad that I didn't, I didn't see native people, you know, wasn't even something I realized until I was 
kind of getting really to know the city is like, how do we have this incredible thing here going on? We have this whole college of people from all over, all literally all over the country who come for this education here. And if we don't notice them, that probably means there's a history of them not feeling welcome. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge problem, you know? So I don't know, I think, I think the last, yeah, I think since since that terrible election, the one before this one, I think mm -hmm. a lot of us have learned a lot about the reality of our country. A lot of us who had the luxury of not having to know all of it because we had white skin and weren't as obviously um, affected in negative ways. Feel bad about that, but any, but there are some wonderful things. And again, one of the cool things about Lawrence is we have a great art scene, including having a wonderful independent bookstore that hosts readings and has been doing those um, through technology during the pandemic time. So, you know, great conversations, great introductions to things that are being written. Um, and I, yeah, I, I obviously love living here. We've been here a long time. <laughs> the place where we can afford to live in a Victorian home and think about what it was like for the couple who had this house built for them, looking through mm -hmm. the same glass and walking up the same stairs and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, anyway. So I learned to love artists after I left the bubble of working in nonprofit and only doing my social work as the director of a 24 hour crisis center. And then I started doing, got nudged into doing a podcast which totally changed. And I started talking to artists and it came up spontaneously from all these artists, like this is what saved my life. My mm. painting, my writing, my dancing, my whatever their art was, you know? And, and it was like, oh, wow, this is so cool how people's art is a really intense kind of communication, very much paralleling what counseling is like for me you know, and doing it through words and listening that that back and forth interaction with somebody. And it's like, I love artists. Artists are just so much like all the wonderful people I've known in this whole national work related to suicide. You know, they're like, they're the best. It's just doing things in different ways. So, so that's why I want to circle back to, tell me some about your involvement as an artist, as a writer, as you know, and I think of that as a, an artist with words. How, how did you find that that's who you are? Well, I began writing, um, like, I would say almost compulsively when I was about 12 or so. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I, I have bipolar disorder and I developed it very, like, much younger than, um, is typical, I think. Um, so I was about 12 and I had a lot of emotional turmoil and like suffering and then really uh, high highs, um, just, you know, on my, off my brain. Uh -huh. And uh, I started writing poetry um, and journal, like journaling and writing poetry. And it was a nonstop thing. Um, you know, like I carried it with me everywhere. I have memories of not having, um, not having my notebook or whatever, and like writing on my body, um, just needing to write. And so I wrote um, 
I wrote that way throughout high school, like, you know, and I started going to this place called the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. Um, yeah. Really legendary. Yeah. In New yeah. York. And they didn't have, I don't know if there was uh, like an age requirement or what, I don't think so. So my friends and I would go at night and um, on the weekend and go to poetry slams. And I thought that was amazing. And I still do and really powerful. And that's kind of where I got an inkling that I might share something I wrote with somebody else mm-hmm. at some point. <laughs> that's so cool. I think in, in high school, I remember there was some sort of festival at my school and I, I read something in that and had, you know, I felt like affirmed in that situation. Uh-huh. And um, it was really though years later, um, first of all, my high school English teacher was tr- a tremendous influence in my life and really um, I really struggled in high school even to get to show up. Uh-huh. Um, but she, you know, seemed to see something in me and um, nurtured my writing and encouraged it and, and, and reading. I mean, she uh, introduced me to so many amazing authors. So um, years later, I was probably 22 and I was taking classes at Hunter College in New York. And uh, there was a man who, was, who sold used books on a table on the street outside of the school. And they were always a dollar, like any book is a dollar. And I saw this amazing uh, cover. It was from, now I know it's like from 1969, a cover of Beckett's trilogy, um, Malloy, Malone and the Unnameable. Hmm. And I bought it because of the cover, honestly. And uh, then, I mean, that book like made me miss a lot of subway stops and (laughs) I I was so compelled by it. And um, just the way that Beckett used language and um, like on the sentence level, I was like, you can do this. Like it's a whole novel about this guy who's you know aging and his body's basically falling apart and he's sort of meandering through a drab landscape like but it I was wrapped you know like it was so beautiful and um funny in a very dry way and um like mesmerizing to me so I for for whatever reason reading that book made me think I want to be a writer so I took the next semester I took a writing workshop at Hunter and it was led by a really wonderful um, graduate student, like an MFA student. And, um, and he said, you should apply to a graduate program, an MFA program. And I was like, what is an MFA? (laughs) And, uh, but that stuck with me. And um, I ended up going to, I transferred to Bard College Um, which is where I graduated from. And there I had a really incredible mentor, um, Mona Simpson, who is a brilliant writer. And um, I wrote this novella, which like, thank God, I didn't try to publish it or anybody, I don't think anybody would have wanted to, but I worked out a lot of like, it was very autobiographical and I worked out a lot of what was on the very surface of my head and 
um, figured out how to write something in a longer form as well. Um, and then, you know, once I, by the time I graduated from college and I was a bit, I was like a non-traditional student. So I was a bit older. Um, I think I graduated at 25. That's now to me is like no different, but um, uh, at the time it was, I felt like very much older than the other students. But um, I, by the time I graduated, I was writing every day and it became like a sacred part of my life and and really still is. Um, in the last five years, um, I have had health problems. I developed um, a, two different autoimmune diseases um, and that was the result of having um, a tick-borne disease. It not, it's called Babesia and it's similar to malaria and I had it for many years without knowing and um, my immune system went hay haywire and I developed um, like two autoimmune conditions and I wasn't able to write for quite a while um, because those conditions um, cause brain inflammation. So um, I, I have lingering like memory issues and um, that's the main thing and fatigue, but um, I'm back to writing, which feels really, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, right before I got sick, I had started um, my novel had come out and I started writing a memoir about growing up with bipolar and in and out of institutions. And, um, and also it's really a portrait of like New York city in the nineties and um, also South Florida because I lived there for a while. So it, there's a lot of like, I, I want the setting and the the other characters, uh, the other people to be as much of a force and and focal point as myself. Uh -huh. um, and the the structure of the memoir is that every chapter is basically shaped like a short story. They can stand alone. Nice. Um, it's sort of like collected tales from my life, but... Um, yeah um so that that's what i've had you know like all the time that i couldn't write i was taking notes and taking notes and writing synopses of chapters that i wanted to write but it was very frustrating and uh -huh. um only in the last month have i gotten back to writing it but i'm so happy <laughs> nice do you have an estimation as to when you'll be finished with that um I'm not the fastest writer. So, I mean, it took me three and a half years to write my novel, though I did write um, the majority of a story collection at the same time. Um, so I think at least, I would say like two or two and a half years. Okay. Um, and I do write other things in the meantime. Like I write essay, I have an essay coming out soon um, on this really great literary web website called Catapult. Um, that'll be in June. And it's actually about the Beckett, uh, you know, situation <laughs> like that experience. Um, and also about um, an amazing activist and actor and um, artist named Jess Tom. She's British, um, who did a, a terrific performance of a Beckett play and she has um, severe Tourette's and, um, basically this essay is about doing 
you know, my own situation with having certain neurological symptoms and doing something not despite having a disability, but with the disability, like mm-hmm. in, it was a revelation for me to watch this performance with Jess Tom in this play called Not I, um, because she, it wasn't that she was performing despite having Tourette's, the Tourette's, her tics, she allowed them to inform her performance in a really meaningful way. Um, and it really added to it and brought a whole fresh dimension to, to that play. And it made total sense, you know, um, mm-hmm. it was really fantastic. So um, seeing that made me think I don't need to struggle to write how I used to write, like to have that same process. I have to find the way that embraces what I have going on right now. Yeah. That's huge. I mean, just thinking about creating art that's really reflective of who you are and valuing that, you know, and the, that notion of looking at what might be perceived as a difference as a strength rather than as a deficit, you know, and that to me, just resonates with all this stuff about trying to to work against the culture that seems so loud that says other is bad right now and and again I think that that notion has been elevated so much in the past six years that it's Mm -hmm. not new but it's been louder so you're talking about art that that contradicts that it's like heck that's wrong that's wrong that's wrong you know right loving who we are and valuing how what we do what what results from our creations with who we really are yes yeah absolutely and at the same time it's not to detract from you know like I can't speak for just Tom or anyone else Uh but I say that having um like you said differences like they are differences they can be disabilities um when especially when i come up against um like really super capitalistic like structures and stuff um i mean there's and also like lack lack of accommodation and things like that so um you know i think a lot of disability lies in like outside of the person with this with the disability it's like a cultural yes. like what you're saying like yes um like difference is bad and whatever yeah. but then there is like the real suffering of like physical pain for example or whatever um that is inherent but um so it's sort of like a very three-dimensional like portrait I guess that I would paint of having having differences that are in some situations disabilities and um but also in other ways can enrich what I am doing and and me as a person yeah I mean I I feel there's things that you just can't imagine um nobody can imagine unless they've lived through it you know like if somebody's never lost somebody close to them 
they've never had somebody close to them die. It's not something that somebody can, no matter how much empathy they have or whatever, it's just yeah. not, uh, or, you know, becoming a parent or falling in love or whatever, certain life experiences, you, you have to have it to really understand. And I think yeah. um, I can say that the illness that I've experienced has deepened me in certain ways. Um, and I don't want to deny that, you know, by yeah. like, and I don't know, so, sort of like through stigma. Yeah. And for me, that, that gets back to that, their cultural perspectives. And like when it comes to things that we might call mental health, I think for everybody who, who has like, well, what are they talking about? Like cultural perspectives, there's, there's this and there's that. It's like, actually, it's not just this or that. And I think a great book that, that is related to depression is a book by Andrew Solomon called The Noonday Demons. And Andrew Solomon is open about living with his own depression. And so he did this, like this Noonday Demons is like this, this, uh, how he does these literal geographic travels and experiences how in different cultures, people are viewed when they have these different kinds of realities related to whether it's something like what in Western world we would call schizophrenia or depression or whatever. And so he, the example, and I, I don't remember how many years ago it was that I, that I read this book, but, but it was like one of the, the examples that, that has always stood out for me was he talks about being in some culture where there is this community ritual that involves the person who has whatever this, this thing, what, whatever kind of what, what Westerners would call mental illness, there's that person mm -hmm. and they're painted in a certain way. And there's this activity with dancing and goats and different things. And it's this public ritual with this person and how, you know, Americans, and for example, would look at that and go, that is just crazy. How could that be beneficial in any way? And, and Andrew Solomon points out, it is just as crazy from their perspective that we would sit in a room with somebody we don't know and talk and think that was going to be helpful, you know, and just right. that stretching. And then and, them too. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and you hear about different traditions that, that value the, the people who are of genders that are non-binary and express that openly and how people are looked at, people who, who again, Western medicine might call this person has schizophrenia and somebody else would look at this person as like a very spiritual wise person, you know, yeah. in a different culture. So it's like, it's not a, it's not like absolute that this is, this is the way to look at these things. I think it's so important for us to pay attention to that, you know, I, and, and to, to be respectful of, of people and not assume that there's something wrong with them. They right. may think their brain may work differently than mine does. You know, mine works differently from theirs does have, you know, but that doesn't mean that one of ours brains is better than the other. And, yeah. and another part of what you said was like about physical pain with some kinds of disabilities. And, and where that hit me was, you know, somehow 
I think there's a pervasive Western idea that pain is to be avoided at all costs, emotional pain or physical pain. And it's like, well, guess what, folks? You cannot have a life and never have any pain. You cannot have love and have no grief ever in your life. Everybody you love is either going to die before you or after you. You're going to grieve them. They're going to grieve you. You know, that's part of love. That's natural. That's not to be avoided. When, when a, somebody we care about comes to us and they're experiencing emotional pain, we can't take it away from them. We can be with them with it, and whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. You know, I, I think about temporary things. Like I, I had a fall that severely broke my right leg at one point and we live in a house with stairs everywhere, stairs to get to the car, stairs to get to the shower, stairs, you know. And, and I remember one day I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to get upstairs because I want to take a shower and I can't walk on the stairs. There are weird little twisty stairs that are the back stairs to the closest to the shower. And I am crying <laughs> sitting on the stairs. And my husband says, you know, how, how can I help? And I said, there's nothing you can do. Just leave me here to cry. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it was just like, I knew that there was, there was nothing. I just needed to cry. I was in yeah. physical pain and I was frustrated. <laughs> I was embarrassed and there was all these things. But it's like, I just needed some time to sit with that pain literally. <laughs> Yes. And to know it was okay that I felt like that in physical and emotional ways. It's just part of life. <laughs> it is. And I think there is this American obsession with fun. Like we're supposed to constantly be having fun. Um, and I, for some reason, when I was teaching as a graduate student, you know, it was like a, I was a graduate teacher um, teaching undergrads. And for some reason, one day I just like went on this tangent in class about how there's there are things greater and more meaningful than fun. Um, like it's not, first of all, fun is not something that we can sustain constantly. It usually um, implies that we're in like a social situation and so ignores the the beauty of solitude or the potential beauty of solitude. And, um, you know, fun isn't exactly joy and fun isn't sorrow. And there's so much weight in so many other, and I'm not saying like nobody should ever have fun. I mean, yeah. fun is great, but um, it's not, to me, it's not like the pinnacle of human existence. <laughs> <Fun>. <laughs> There's other things, but also what you were saying um, about needing to sit with pain um, reminds me of, you know, Humans of New York, that photographer, it's a photographer who, you know, uh -huh. he travels all over and takes pictures of people and there, there will be a quote with the photo, usually something that the person he's taken the photograph of says, and he took a photograph, it's a beautiful image of these three women in Iraq, I think, and um, the one of the other, there's three women and I guess one of them was very, you know, she was grieving something. And um, the woman with her, one of the women with her said, we're sitting with her to, like, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was like, we're sitting with her to carry her grief. Uh -huh. And I just thought like, our culture is starved for that kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, 
we really don't, you know, we're very isolated in a lot of ways. Yeah. And ne- like we have positive and negative emotions. And I hate and that it, distinction. I don't believe in that it's distinction. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. And but I mean anything that's deemed negative is some something to even be ashamed of. There's like a stigma around yeah. even depression that has a direct you know a universally depressed the depressing situation you know like losing a parent for example and being in grief um for people to have to go through their pain alone to the extent that we do here is Mm -hmm. really sad i think yeah and to also like shy away from genuine expression of emotion um you know, if it's joy or whatever, you know, like, um, that's such a loss, I think. Yeah, it's, that reminded me that, that kind of quashing joyful expression, uh, um, I guess in March, it was a, a national mental health um, conference that I was participating in virtually through this, um, associated with a journal called Psychotherapy Networker, which whatever but but these two black uh female therapists were what was it was uh was actually taraji henson who started this mental health program for for black people and part of it specifically for black men and this black woman who is a therapist and they were talking about things and they both talked about you know basically always being told when they were in mixed race circles to be quieter, you know? <laughs> that the exuberance that was natural for them and that was part of their family traditions, you know, was looked at as too much if white people were around. <laughs> right. And how wrong that like, was. The, that's such a negative lens. And it's like the, the other lens is like, let's elevate this entire situation with yeah. some experience like yeah. You know, yeah we could talk about a ton of things and i also want to make sure that people get to hear some of your writing if you are willing that would be great yeah. yes yeah. okay so i would love to share i guess um the opening just i'll read the opening of my book um of my novel the australian Okay. On the streets of Melbourne, the Australian parades around dressed as Superman, paying his way through university by posing for photos, conscious of the bulge of his cock. Novelty, sex object, comic relief. It is all good. Radios across his nation have been playing a song that goes, I've got the brains, you've got the looks, let's make lots of money. In his mind, the Australian is both of the people in the song. He is smart, smart enough to know when effort is absolutely required and when he can fake it. And he is handsome with chiseled abdominal muscles underneath the chiseled abdominal muscles of his costume. He smiles widely, his teeth luminous, his canines threatening. All his life, he has been indiscriminate with his enthusiasm, invincible within the hedonistic splendor of the present moment, like some kind of inverted Buddha. This is not to say that the Australian's life has been without adversity. He never had a father, and while his mother means well, her ceaseless affection is like an ill-fitting homemade sweater, all itch and chafe. 
but these misfortunes are deep in the background, monotonous as a refrigerator's electric hum. They take conscious effort for the Australian to dis discern, and why bother? His head is filled with sunlight, cricket, mischief, girls. Then one sunny Friday morning during his last month of schooling, he suddenly acquires for the first time a distinct ambition. As he wraps his right arm against a, around a group of Irish tourists, and as they cram themselves into his sweat-seamed armpit, and as he flexes his left bicep, bicep, round and stiff as an apple, the Australian thinks, I will be a rich man. After graduation, the Australian moves to New York to work on Wall Street, but right off the bat, he can't stand his boss. She reminds him of the heartless provocateur who took tickets at the public pool in the seaside town where he spent his childhood summers and who flaunted her tremendous breasts and treated the Australian with what he perceived to be hostile indifference. Day after day, he is unable to focus on the neon river of information that flows from his computer screen, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, symbols, numbers. His attention drifts to the window. Pigeons congregate on the rooftop across the street and the Australian ponders what diseases they carry, the subtleties of their social order and how exactly they achieve sexual intercourse. For his in inattentiveness and what his boss describes as a failure to demonstrate a sense of urgency, he is reprimand reprimanded regularly. After six months of trying to reckon with his haughty over overseer, he quits the brokerage firm and goes to work for himself. He takes the money he has recently inherited from his estranged father who perished in a rather foreseeable hang gliding accident and triples it within eight months through some risky and uncalculated investments. The Australian knows he has struck upon the kind of luck that can turn on you in a heartbeat and that he must take his winnings and move on to some other pursuit. On a summer afternoon, while he is musing over possibilities, the Australian happens upon a coffee shop called Esperanto. A sign in the window reads, Welcome, Bon Vino. Esperanto is the universal language of peace and understanding. Invented in 1887 by the physician Ludwig Lazarus Zamenhof, Esperanto is free from any national, political, or religious affiliation. Esperanto means one that hopes. It was Zamenhof's hope that Esperanto would one, one day be the mother tongue of all humankind. Peace, Paco. Thinks of his friends and mother back in Melbourne, and he is submerged in an achy, sloppy feeling. The words homesick, solo, and lost flit through his brain. He wonders whether this feeling is common amongst, among ex expats, and then whether an Australian New York City can be considered an expat, a word that invokes rough-hewn men in their 50s and 60s playing card games over tequila at tro tropical beachfront bars. Can a guy in his 20s living in one of the world's great cities and international hub be classified among such men? The Australian is disappointed to admit to himself that he is likely simply an immigrant. Reading Esperanto's sign a second time, the idea of a universal mother tongue excites One that hopes is a description the Australian finds befitting of himself. Perhaps he will learn Esperanto one day. Entering the cafe, he feels like a citizen of the world. While sitting in an armchair drinking an iced coffee, he meets a young girl. She is a plump high school student in tiny red t-shirt, 
and pale blue jeans with ripped knees. She bites her nails in between sips of hot chocolate, a curious choice considering the monstrous heat. The Australian listens to her talk for a long time about how everyone she knows has sold out. When finally she winds down in a way that reminds him of a particular toy from his childhood, he tells her he is a venture capitalist. She follows him home, does some coke with him, spreads her legs. What's a venture capitalist, she asks afterward, sprawled with her limp limbs heavy over his. He thinks for a moment, distracted by the pain of his knee hyperextending between, hyperextending under the weight of her ample thigh, and then simply says, it takes money to make money. The girl seems satisfied with that answer. Henceforth, the Australian tells everyone that he is a venture capitalist. I'll stop there. It's just um, a short uh, little excerpt from the beginning. Uh -huh. um, what happens next is that he opens day club, the, the, you know, the club <laughs> that's open to the day. And then, uh, let me see where this is. I don't know. Um, he, he meets his soon to be wife in a bar and then he becomes obsessed with parkour. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of is like a spiraling narrative and, um, uh, takes him back to Australia for a long time yeah. um, uh, because his mother is ill. And then I don't want to. Yeah, don't spoil it. Spoilers. It from that. <laughs> I, I remember after I, when you and I were talking if, originally about doing this a recording together that I told you that, you know, I, I have books and then I have special books and that the Australian went to the pile of these are these really cool books that I'm really you know, like these are the ones like you have to read this way you know <laughs> so oh, I, I hope that that people get that sense of it, it's a really great read and I hope that that some of our listeners will end up with a copy of their own <laughs> thank you yeah there's like also a lot of satirical elements around American culture pop culture there's a character that's just called the pop star. Um, she's like frantic because her boyfriend is addicted to ginkgo biloba supplements, you know, just um, there. Yeah, there's a, quite a cast of characters in the yeah. book. <laughs> and mom's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then there's also part, part of it is the about reality TV. Uh -huh. <laughs> and what's really funny is uh, the reality TV show in the book is um, like a salon, it's a concept salon where people, um, what is it, like say three words to describe themselves and then they get a haircut based on that, <laughs> that description. And right after my book came out, I was getting a haircut and, and I, I told the woman, This a little bit of intuitive <laughs> we it's like the same <laughs> we had a little bit of internet problem so i turned off my uh video to reserve bandwidth for audio could you say that again about you getting your haircut based on the, the with the three words 
Like oh a- yeah. So I was in a um, I was in a salon like right after my book came out, and the uh, I said you know in my book there's this salon where it's like a concept where the person getting their haircut you know gives a word or three or something to describe themselves, and then the uh-huh. the stylist gives them a haircut based on that description. It's like an intuitive haircut. And the woman cutting my hair said, this is an intuitive salon. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> and uh, a lot of things from my book have weirdly come to be. Like, um, I the, the pop star in the book goes to the Amazon to do ayahuasca. And it's sort uh-huh. of like this, you know, like, wealthy white woman, like, going to Peru to have this supposedly authentic experience or whatever and um that is now a huge thing like all there's a lot there are a lot of tourists from America going to have a spiritual experience in the Amazon yeah with ayahuasca (laughs) and there was an episode of like Gwyneth Paltrow's company Goop has a (laughs) show on Netflix and there's an episode about ayahuasca of course she would do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's an interesting thing that's just a side note that i mean there is this this whole thing now of different kinds of use of different kinds of hallucinogenics related to what we call mental health issues and Mm -hmm. then a, a little little thing that got snuck in when i was listening to to uh, research or talk about this was also that the traditional pharmaceutical companies don't earn enough money off of mental health meds. So that's part of why there's this going back to, well, let's look at some of the drugs that already exist, which isn't a bad thing. I I just think I thought that was interesting that she, that this researcher felt the need to say, you know, there is a dynamic that people don't care about making mental health drugs. It's like, interesting, Mm. isn't that? Not that we it's need really to have. Strange. I don't quite understand it because so many people take like antidepressants and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But wow. Yeah, yeah. I actually have heard about the psych- like psychedelic drugs in particular. I think uh-huh. like MDMA, uh-huh. you know, ecstasy, whatever being used yeah. for like PTSD. But yeah. it's like micro micro dosed. Yeah. Um, I read about this. It's really interesting. It is interesting. I'm not ready for my own deep dive. (laughs) I I did a deep dive into psychedelics in high school, but I'm not ready to go back. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's what some of us would say. Yeah. Yeah. There was a time in my life. I don't know that now (laughs) is the time again, though. (laughs) I feel like in high school, your brain is not fully developed. So you're like not thinking this could go to this could go terribly wrong. Yeah. But now I definitely have a part of my brain that's devoted to saying that things could go terribly wrong. <laughs> so there, those are both truths. I mean, literally, our brains, as we, as I say, are not fully cooked until we're about twenty-five or so. So it's wow. not everything's not developed and synced, and that that part of consequences of things isn't isn't so connected when we're right. younger. <laughs> Yeah, I think an integral part of a good trip is not worrying about it like <laughs> like I would. <laughs> yeah, 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 there is that. Yeah, you don't want to exaggerate that with other things. So so The Australian is your novel that's available. You have a short story collection that at some point will become 
something that people can buy and a memoir that you're working on now. Do you still also write some poetry? As you mentioned when um, you were young. You know what I, it's, it's strange like that sort of part of my brain um, doesn't, I don't know, I don't, I don't really write. I've written some poetry in the last like 10 years or so and then they were very narrative and became short stories, mm -hmm. like really short stories. Like I, a lot of my, I would say about 40 or 50% of my short stories are really short, like <laughs> a thousand words or less. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those ones started as poems that I have a critical eye enough to know, like, this isn't working as a poem it should be a story because just all this stuff happens <laughs> uh -huh. so I think I've, I I have the brain of a of a storyteller more than like like not to this is a horrible generalization and I somebody's gonna be upset but I think <laughs> um like poetry to me is more it has movement but I would say it's more like a painting um, like it captures a moment or a feeling in, with images and um, the line breaks have functions that I can't uh -huh. like do. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm not good at line breaks. Um, <laughs> I, I envy people who are <laughs> poets. I'm not a poet really. Um, but it was as a mode of like personal expression um, it historically has been great for me. Mm -hmm. um, but when I'm writing something that I'm, I wanna communicate something to others, um, it's prose. And I would, I guess I would know more about this reading more when more is published, but my sense is that often people who have written poetry also have taken that gift of packing a lot into their words, a lot of imagery, a lot of meaning, it goes into their prose as well. That to me, a lot of the writing that I really enjoy reading, I can imagine it as poetry because it has that same intensity of so much in the words, you know. I love reading personally yeah. more than I love watching a movie because I like the words going into my brains and the images that my brain connects with, you know, as opposed to watching it more passively on a screen. And so I, I love those, those yeah. things that, that I get, that I can do that easily as I'm reading. And so mm -hmm. the, the Australian was yeah. fun. I mean, I think people got a glimpse of that, you know, as, as you read that from the first part of that. And so I think you said you also have some of your memoir that you would share, is that right? Um, I have like a very short nonfiction piece um, okay. that is, I mean, it's basically in the style of my memoir, but it, okay. it's actually about um, the pandemic. So okay. oh, um, it, it it's, takes place long after the cutoff point, basically of my memoir in terms okay. of time. Okay, um, I would love to read this. It's yeah. called Hummingbirds. I received a text from my husband who was at work. Get your stuff, we're leaving first thing tomorrow. 
In my frenzy to leave Brooklyn, I packed essential oils and tote bags full of vitamins, but no socks or underwear. I accidentally locked my purse in a stranger's car. Now in the suburbs, I lie on crew cut grass with my two dogs waiting to see a hawk. Did you know hummingbirds expend over 10 times more energy while, fly while hovering than flying? That their hearts and wings beat at maximum speeds in order to keep the tiny birds in place? My territory during quarantine is lawn and house, lawn and house. The pride of my in-laws who are at their Florida condo. My husband's childhood home is encircled by flower beds planted to sprout and bloom in waves. I can't not think of orgasms through spring and summer, the big climax in August. The pandemic started in January and now it's April and the worldwide death count from the virus is estimated to be 170,000. My fortune right now is undeniably swell. The house and lawn are wholesome and strange, but milk is milk. My husband and I consume our rations, watch TV, read, nap with the dogs, try and fail to write or fuck. The smallness of my life occurs to me during quarantine and it can't be blamed on the virus since it's been happening slowly for years. And I wonder what it is with me and what wrongs I've done and am I terrible and a bore and too opinionated and do my friends hate me or is it just my depression, our depression? We are also depressed now during pandemic. And oh, what luxurious angst a realization that does not stop me from making the most of this, whatever that could possibly mean. I am sluggish, half dead, it's all too much. I'm growing giddy, writing suicide notes in my head. In these suburbs, nature wears a straight jacket and the hawk never comes. Also, I invented the stuff about hummingbirds, though it could be true, who knows. It's early evening, the sky beginning to dim, and my daydreams, lying here on this lawn, grow heavier, darker. I'm sinking, I need out. There's a handgun belonging to my father-in-law in the house, and I don't know where it is, but I feel the magnetic tug. I walk from the yard into the house, then out the front door and towards the freeway. My husband, I know, is busy with something and doesn't yet realize that I've left. I watch car after car, after truck, after car, not jumping in front, not jumping again. I sit down, legs crossed on the slim sidewalk. Behind me is a graveyard. The 911 operator calls me honey, says it's good I called, and I can't understand that. Cops come and an ambulance. I am asked whether I have been exposed to the virus, and I answer it's possible because anything is, and the maskless cops quickly take a big step back. As I'm wheeled on the gurney into the tiny suburban hospital's emergency department, I press my palms against my face, shut my eyes for shame. When I dare to peek through my fingers, I find myself in an isolation room placed there in case the virus is in me, and so I can be monitored by a tech assigned as my sitter. I'm allowed to call my husband from my cell, but he cannot come to me. I've reached a new layer of quarantine, barred from the only one I want near. I wait for a doctor. After nine hours, the on-call psychiatrist comes for a chat, his eyes dancing, God knows why, his face ruddy above an N95 mask and through a clear plastic shield. I want nothing but freedom from this place. 
The psychiatrist asks me questions about why I'm here, what is wrong, family history, and I say very little, just, just perfectly. He decides not to admit me. The question doesn't even come up, and I realize it's because many of the people in that crammed emergency department are seriously ill or dying from the virus. Eight months from now, my husband and I will catch the virus and sw swiftly recover. I will compulsively re reiterate how lucky we were to him and everyone else. My husband arrives at the hospital to drive me home, texts me from the entryway. I go to him. I have forgotten about the gun. It is morning when I return to the house with, my, with the lawn to resume my quarantine. Finally, I see the hawk out the kitchen window perched on a tree branch overlooking the feeder. Two or three seconds later, it spies me and is soaring. No matter, it is a hummingbird I'm waiting for now to witness its colorful iridescence, to be reminded about desire, to tie this, tie this whole thing shut. That's it. That's powerful. Thank you. And I apologize, because I'm not sure if you said this at the beginning, you said this was post what you're writing in your memoir, but is this your real experience? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, basically, I had a lot of psychiatric symptoms from um, brain inflammation, from encephalitis. Uh -huh. um, and that's, that was going on at that time. Um, I was, it took, I was hospitalized a few times after that, and then diagnosed. And then I had like, serious steroid infusions and stuff and got better. Um, but I didn't know, you know, because I have bipolar, it was very like murky and difficult to figure out what was going on with me. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that's nonfiction and, um, just came out like in one piece, you know, mm -hmm. which I love. <laughs> to me, it's, it's a lot like me sitting on my stairs crying in pain you know mm. it's like these are real experiences that people have you know and and I think by your generosity and sharing your your bravery and sharing that there are people who will read that or people who are hearing that in the podcast who kind of say oh my god I thought I was the only one and mm. it's like no you're yeah, I, I, I really grew up feeling like I was the only one yeah. with mental health issues. And, um, and then as a result, I felt like the, like this, tar you know, dirt on my family, basically, like, mm -hmm. not that my parents shamed me or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They were very worried about me, but um, I just felt so much shame. And I think that there's a lot in the way that, especially psychiatric uh, units in hospitals are designed that, I mean, I get that they're trying to reduce harm, like any sort of harm that somebody can do to themselves or others, mm -hmm. but there's something similar. Uh, well, I won't draw that connection, but I just think there's something very punitive feeling yeah. about, um, about those places. Yeah. It is like and, being in a jail cell, you know, it is. 
And, and even the terminology, it's, it was interesting to me because you, you reference that, that position that they call a sitter, somebody to, to be with somebody and observe. And that's been a recent source of some significant discussion on a national um, list, email discussion list that I'm on related to suicide and how in so many settings, that is the d job label and the limits, the constraints are very extreme, that, that it really is not somebody who's there as a support person. It's somebody there watching, you know, sitting and watching, but not comforting, not interacting, not saying, you know, I actually am a person who also has some struggles with my own mental health and I, and I can imagine some of what this is like, how can I help you, you know? So, yeah, anyway, there, there's, there's a lot not right with how we deal with health in this country, that's for sure, for sure. It is uh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do wanna ask about hawks and hummingbirds in that, like I'm sitting here at a table where one of the things on the center of the table is a collection of feathers, feathers that I've picked up on walks and, and in kayaking, including an eagle feather, an eagle dropped a feather in front of us when we were kayaking one day last summer. Mm -hmm. But hawks are prevalent around here. Um, one of the poetry um, groups and readings is called red tail for red tail hawks. And hummingbirds are also a very special magical thing. So I wondered if you have some things about hawks and hummingbirds that, that you would wanna to add to their appearance in that part of your story. Um, I, I, I'm like an aspiring, aspiring birder. Like okay. I really want, I want to know how to identify birds and, um, when I lived in Gainesville, there was a beautiful nature preserve called Payne's Prairie where um, like, yeah, there were alligators and bison and stuff, but like the really serious people there were birders and they had like serious, um, you know, binoculars and um, books and they would like mark down what they saw and everything. Uh -huh. And so I learned a little bit about birds just from talking to them. Uh -huh. um, but I I do get a thrill when I see certain birds. I don't know. Um, one of them is very ordinary. My favorite bird is the red-winged blackbird. Um, it's like not rare or that that special to most people, I don't think, but I, I just love them. Um, it's like they're black and then there's this hint of this like ecstatic burst of color, but it's just like, mostly under their wing cool. um but um yeah hummingbirds are gorgeous i tr i've lived in places where i've had hummingbird feeders and tried to get them to come um i don't know i don't know there's something um a little bit ominous about like waiting for a hawk that is because it's a, a bird of prey and um not that I dislike them at all. It's just, I, I love them, but mm -hmm. I just think um, there's that kind of like a threat to their power a little bit. Mm 
and hummingbirds are very in a way sensuous just like as a as a visual creature and then also they drink the nectar out of like these beautiful flowers and um I don't know I think it's the contrast between those two things they're very different Uh they have totally different energy Uh um but I mean that's really what happened but I think that that's probably my association with it and why it stood out to me Uh the, the contrast yeah very cool well we're at this point where we we do need to wrap up i i'm always like how did we get past an hour (laughs) it seems like it's just been a minute and it's been so delightful um i've the best time thank you yay (laughs) yay so i don't think we've said your name since the beginning that's i just realized that so i want our listeners to know this discussion this conversation is with emma smith stevens and emma how would people find you find out more about what you're up to follow what you're doing those kinds of things yeah okay so i have um i have a website which is just my name without the hyphen emma smith stevens with a v dot com um and i will post like uh whatever readings conferences stuff like that on the mm-hmm. um news page and um i have actually a lot of short stories and some essays that you can read like their links on the writing pages of my website mm-hmm. um and then my website also links to my social media but i have twitter and the main place to follow me is Twitter. Um, my handle is E Smith Stevens, all one word. Um, or I guess at E Smith Stevens. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I have, um, Facebook too. The link is on my, on my, uh, website. website. Yeah. And then also there's a newsletter, which is linked on my website on the contact page. Uh-huh. Um, it's, called notes from the Wonderground, and it's not something that like spams everyone with stuff every day or something it's maybe once a month um okay. but I write um I write something about like something going on in the world and then book recommendations music recommendations nice. um and yeah so and it's not just like plugging my own stuff it's um <laughs> kind of meant to be something to read as a Great. its own thing. Great. And I will say the Australian and it's the title is the Australian a novel by MS Smith Stevens is a wonderful read and I bought my copy through my local independent bookseller which is the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas with owner poet Danny Kane. Um, and I encourage people to buy from independent bookstores. Come on, folks, you can do it. <laughs> independent bookstores host readings. That. They do great things. They, they are not able to buy mass quantities of books at the price that online booksellers do. They also are able to pay um, the people who actually wrote books a higher percentage than like the $2 or whatever 
my friend Paul gets for his novels that are sold on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, support art by buying as close to the creator as you can. I've had such a blast. This has been such a great part of my day. Emma, we could talk and we hopefully will talk again as there's more news to tell to people. Um, And listeners, I just hope that you enjoyed this. Uh, Even half as much as we did would be really great because we've had a blast. This has been wonderful. So again, thank you, Emma. Oh gosh. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. It's been so great. Thank you, listeners. Enjoy this and look forward to more new talk with me and checking out some of those episodes that have been around for a while that are really great too. So long to all.